It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of December 23rd, 2007, last program of the year. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and we still leave out the commercials. Recently, I've been thinking a lot about operating systems, and depending on which operating system you like, it's the one you probably feel is best. Most of us tend to be a little bit chauvinistic toward the operating system we like. Unfortunately, I like three of them fairly well and really don't particularly dislike any. People argue about which operating system is going to crash more than the other. We hear from Unix users that their machines run for years at a time. Well, sometimes that's true, but in most cases it's not. Windows Vista, I have been using it for a few months, and granted it has crashed a lot, but those crashes were all related to hardware problems. Once we got the hardware problems fixed, Vista has been pretty stable. Still does some things I don't like, but it's pretty stable. Apple OS X, 10.5, Leopard. Do you ever realize just how long Apple's names are for their operating systems? Uh, 10.5 has, from Apple users, oddly enough, received a drubbing. Some people who own Apple computers, having loaded Leopard, say that their machines now crash a lot. I have loaded Leopard. I have not seen crashes. I have seen crashes on other versions of the Apple operating system. It's not immune to crashes. What about some of the other operating systems? FreeBSD... IBM OS2, now there's a group of computer users. If you find an OS2 fan, uh, you will find someone who rabidly defends OS2. How about Microsoft DOS 6.11? That was essentially the last real version of DOS. Uh, and it was, by the time they got to version 6, pretty stable. Ubuntu Linux 7.10. In the time that I've used it, the past couple of months, it has performed very well. But as I thought about this, I thought back to pre-2000 operating systems. And probably the most resilient operating system I ever worked with ran on DEC PDP machines. The ones I saw it on were PDP-11s. The operating system was called RISTUS-E, Resource Sharing Time Sharing Slash Extended. By the time I did any work with RISTUS-E, it was a very mature operating system. In fact, it was fairly near to the end of its life. Ristus rarely crashed. But as I said, it was near the end of its life. Operating systems, like anything else, has a certain lifetime. Things change over the course of an operating system's life. And at some point, the operating system is no longer really worth maintaining. Even digital equipment had moved beyond Ristus to RSX. They were still continuing to support Ristus, but the hardware Ristus ran on was essentially doomed. The PDP platform would not run. I forget what the date was, but there was some date. It wasn't the year 2000, but it was, uh, I believe, 2001 or 2002. After that date, the, the hardware would no longer operate properly. There were shortcomings in the hardware. So if somebody asks you which operating system will never crash, the answer is none of them. Every operating system will crash. 
And maybe it's worthwhile to take a little time out here and consider what an operating system is. It's just line after line of code written by people running on hardware, developed, designed, and built by people. In an imperfect world, it is unreasonable to assume that any such system will run indefinitely without a problem. Now, if you're really interested in the components that make up an operating system, Wikipedia has a pretty good article in reasonably plain English. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website to that article. It begins this way. An operating system is the software that manages the sharing of resources on a computer and provides programmers with an interface used to access those resources. An operating system processes system data and user input and responds by allocating and managing tasks and internal system resources as a service to users and programs of the system. At the foundation of all system software, an operating system performs basic tasks such as controlling and allocating memory, prioritizing system requests, controlling input and output devices, facilitating networking, and managing file systems. Most operating systems come with an application that provides a user interface for managing the operating system, such as a command line interpreter or a graphical user interface. The operating system forms a platform for other system software and for the application's software. The most commonly used contemporary desktop operating system is Microsoft Windows, with Mac OS X also being well-known. Linux and BSD are popular Unix-like systems. Now, if that made any sense at all to you, then take a look at the Wikipedia article. It continues in that vein, describing an operating system and how it works, as I said, in plain English. Now, what caused me to think about this is a book about Ubuntu Linux. After being away from single-user Linux for a few years, I was astonished to see how much easier the current distributions are to install. With modest hardware, a free operating system, and a bunch of open-source applications, it is easy to put together a home computer for about $400. Now, it won't run Windows, and it won't come with Windows applications, but it will have a word processor, a spreadsheet program, graphics applications, a presentation program, a web browser, and an email program built in right from the beginning. The book I've been reading says that, unlike Windows, Linux will never crash. <clears throat> when I run across a statement like that in a book, I tend to discount everything else the author has to say. Linux will crash. Now, it is true that Linux crashes infrequently, but these days so does Windows. My XP system at the office usually runs for months between reboots, and I don't recall ever seeing a system crash at the office. Now, at home, on my Vista machine, as I mentioned, I've seen a lot of crashes, but those were all directly attributable to failing hardware. Once the hardware became stable, Vista became stable. So perhaps it is sufficient to say that I've seen machines running Apple's OS X and machines running Linux that became so befuddled that the only way to resolve the problem was to pull the plug Maybe that doesn't qualify as a crash in this author's mind because there was no mysterious error message, just a complete lack of response from the machine. To my mind, any time a computer fails to respond to an external signal for an extended period of time, that computer has crashed. So if you're looking for an operating system that won't crash ever, you're going to have to wait a long time. Today's three safest operating systems, at least as far as crashing is regarded, would have to be Linux, Unix, and that includes Apple's OS X, and Windows XP. 
I specified only XP instead of XP and Vista because XP has been around longer and Microsoft engineers have been able to find most of the problems. Vista seems overall to be reliable, but I would still consider it too new to be labeled as safe. No matter what application you're running, it or the operating system will sometimes crash, so save your work often. And hardware can fail, so keep a current backup. If you are still having a problem selecting an operating system, you're not alone. Some people who have used Windows since the beginning are thinking about defecting because of what they've heard about Vista. Some Apple users threatened to leave when Apple migrated from OS 9 to OS 10, and threatened again when Apple dumped Motorola processors in favor of Intel processors. However, most Apple users seem to have stayed, and for that matter, most Windows users seem to have stayed. There are obviously more valid choices today than there were in the early days of personal computers. Choose Windows if you happen to dislike Steve Jobs and you can't trust community-written software. Or choose OS X if you dislike Bill Gates and you can't trust community-written software. Linux would be a good choice if you dislike Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and you can't trust proprietary software. You've probably seen some of those articles that compare operating systems to beers or to airlines. Recently, I ran across one of these. I spent a little time and updated it somewhat. I'd like to be able to tell you who wrote the original, but I can't because I don't know. There's more than a little truth here. So, what if the writers of operating systems ran airlines? You'd have DOS Air. Well, you would have had DOS Air. It's a company that went out of business because everybody had to get out and push the airplane to get it started, jump in as soon as it started to glide, ride until it hit the ground again, usually pretty hard, and then start over. Mac lines came along. and Everyone at the airline was unfailingly polite, but they all looked, dressed, and acted exactly the same. Should you happen to ask a question about when the plane might be leaving or where it might be going, you would be informed, politely but firmly, that you really don't need to know that. Mac Airlines spawned OSX Air, division of Mac Lines. It uses sleek new planes, and all the terminals are gleaming white. As you approach the ticket counter, the clerk hands you a ticket with your picture on it, even though you didn't notice her snap the picture. You never see any other passengers on the plane. The flight features music and movies start to finish. When you arrive, you wonder where you are and how you got there. And then there's the big airline, Windows World Airways. Consists of several regional carriers and a couple of worldwide divisions. The terminals are colorful, the personnel are friendly, but performance varies wildly from one division to the next. Windows Air features planes that have minor engineering shortcomings. In some cases, these shortcomings cause no significant problems, but occasionally the plane simply explodes without warning. Then there was Windows New Tech Air uses larger planes that are capable of flying much further before they explode. However, when these planes explode, they destroy all other aircraft within 40 miles. Windows XP Airlines, the first worldwide carrier, flies from airports that serve only Windows XP Airlines. The planes are twice as large as they need to be. As you enter the plane, you are provided a uniform so that you, the other passengers, and the crew all look the same. Regardless of where you intend to go, all of these planes fly to Redmond. And then there's Vista Airlines, largest airplanes ever made. 
As you walk through the terminal on the way to your plane, security officers stationed about every 10 feet repeatedly ask if you are sure that you want to keep walking toward the plane. Because the planes are so large, they require far more fuel, and despite that, still get you to your destination in about double the time required by other airlines. Oh, and there's a startup, Linux Air, formed by disgruntled employees of the other airlines. They build the planes, set up the ticket counters, pave the runways. Although they charge a small fee to cover the cost of printing the ticket, you can also download and print the ticket yourself. When you board the plane, you're handed a seat, four bolts, a wrench, and a page of instructions for running man install underscore seat dot text. The planes leave and arrive on time. The in-flight meal is extraordinary. Some passengers, however, occasionally touch an unlabeled control that transports their seat to the outside of the airplane. So that probably didn't help you decide which operating system you really want, but perhaps you at least enjoyed it a bit. Last year, some friends gave me a gift subscription to Netflix. I have really enjoyed seeing a collection of movies from a long time ago. Uh, some more recent movies that I've missed, and some old TV shows, Twilight Zone, Mission Impossible, and did you never notice in Mission Impossible, everybody smokes? The Outer Limits, The Avengers, programs like that. Well, recently, Netflix added a Watch Instantly feature that allows me to watch a certain number of hours worth of movies every month on my computer. I can now say I have done that once. Once was enough. That's nothing against Netflix specifically, although the Netflix feature requires Internet Explorer and will not work with Firefox. I'm not sure what happens to Mac users because only an antique version of IE is available for the Mac, or what happens for Linux users, so that actually was strike one. So I started watching a movie, and a few seconds in, a message popped up. Your internet connection has slowed, it told me. We are adjusting playback to avoid further interruption. Estimated time until start, 38 seconds. Now, I'm on a 3 megabits per second connection, which is faster than average now that Wide Open West has figured out what the problem is and resolved it. So that error message would be strike two. And even though Netflix said there would be no further interruption in the movie, the movie I watched had a nasty habit of skipping and stuttering. Sometimes the video got out of sync with the audio, and then the video had to play double speed to catch up with the audio. Strike three. The three strikes, though, aren't the main reason I won't be using the Watch Instantly feature. The real reasons I won't be watching movies with Watch Instantly has more to do with me and my surroundings. When I watch a movie, I expect to spend an hour and a half or more sitting in something other than an office chair. And knowing that the movie is running on a computer, I'm tempted to check my email or do other work during slow parts of the movie. Now, invariably, that means I miss something important, and then I have to rewind the movie to see what I missed. The first concern could be resolved with a more comfortable chair or a different chair that would be used only for movies. The second concern could be resolved only by handcuffing me. On-demand video is coming but the computer is the wrong destination today. It may be the wrong destination forever. When we all live in fully networked houses that allow me to serve video from anywhere to anywhere, watch instantly will work. Until then, what's wrong with DVDs?
No news is good news this week. No nerdly news. Instead of nerdly news, spam. Some laughable, some dangerous. The storm worm continues to mutate in ways that make it extremely dangerous if you don't practice careful clicking. But, you know, really, nobody should fall for the messages from storm. There's also been a big increase in Russian spam. Now, maybe Russian spammers don't comprehend that most people in the United States don't speak Russian. They could be forgiven for believing that, because during the Soviet period, English was taught in Russia. Probably more than half of native-speaking Russians also speak English. But in looking at spam this week, we'll start with this storm worm. One recent example gives kind of a nod to the Bush administration's enhanced interrogation methods. It appears to be a message from one inquisitor to another. It reads like this. Hi, James. Here's the video of that patient interrogation cross-examination. I think he doesn't say everything. I'll ask the psychologist to work with him. I suppose he can fall under a hypnotist spell. Also, I'll make him to pass lie detector examination, and we'll compare all the information and make a conclusion. If you need me, I'm online. Gerald. And attached is a video fragment. Claims to be a zip file. Well, of course it isn't a zip file. And if you click on it, your computer is going to be infected with the storm worm. Here's another one from the Adult Friend Finder. It says, Good day, dear. Natasha sent you animated card with her photos. You can check card in your attachment. Regards, Adult Sex Finder. Yep, sex always sells, so that's a variant that offers pictures. You don't want to click that one either. Occasionally, I take down all of my anti-spam measures and just allow the crud to flow in for a day or perhaps for just a few hours. I did that this week, turned off all spam filtering overnight. So in the period of about eight hours, I received on one account, one account, keep in mind, 258 messages. 257 of those messages were spam. Now, granted, I have a fairly high-profile email address. I make it readily available on the Internet. That's one of the reasons that I get so much spam. But there is a funny side to spam. I received one in Russian. It caught my attention because the subject line in Russian is, You need spam is us. It's an offer to provide lists of email addresses so that I could spam, oh, say, for example, 4 million addresses in Moscow would cost me 6,000 rubles. 3 million in St. Petersburg, 5,000 rubles. I could get 2 million addresses in Kiev for 3,000 rubles, or I could add the entire Ukraine for just 1,000 rubles more. For lawyers and judges, they claim 1.5 million addresses, 8,000 rubles. I passed up the opportunity. But at least they have the honesty to call themselves Spam Is Us. And I wondered about this one. A spam came in in mid-December for a conference being held Christmas Day in Moscow for internal auditors. Now, probably the number of U.S. citizens who would have any interest in this program could be counted on the fingers of, at most, two hands. And perhaps most amusing, a spam that came from German Shepherd. Now, German was written phonetically in the Cyrillic alphabet, German, but Shepherd was written in the Roman alphabet. And besides that, German in Russian is Nemetsky, not German. So what was this German Shepherd offering? 
Well, they were offering tours around the holidays. Now, again, this is a piece of spam that arrived in mid-December, offering tours around the Christmas and New Year's holidays. A little late, I would think. The tours that they offered, among others, the Lights of Moscow, 550 rubles. Agent Uglich, 750 rubles. San Francisco, 780 rubles. Now, wait a minute. I smell at least a mouse and maybe a rat at this point. 780 rubles for a three-day trip to San Francisco from Moscow? I'd like to see how anybody can spend three days in San Francisco for 780 rubles. I couldn't even do that traveling from Columbus. I couldn't do it for $780. And 780 rubles is about $31.50. Well, it is the last show of the year, so happy holidays. And I mean that very sincerely, regardless of what holiday you celebrate. Some people seem to think that Happy Holidays is an attack on Christmas. It is not. It is not anti-Christian. It is not anti-Christmas. It is simply an attempt to be inclusive. There are various other holidays celebrated at this time of year, and regardless of which you celebrate or don't, Happy Holidays. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide, last program for 2007, for the week of December 23rd, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com, and you can send an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.